Well, good morning, Convergent Church. It's great to be with you guys again. What a joy it is to gather to worship King Jesus, to sing his praise, to look upon his word, to remember who he is and all that he has done for us, to be challenged in our walk with him, to be equipped for the work of ministry, and then to be sent back out to live on mission in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and in our places of work. If you're joining us for your first time, welcome. My name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church. And you've joined us at a very exciting time. We started meeting in homes earlier in the year as we endeavored to, to launch a new church for Owasso. And we outgrew our homes, and we started meeting in the loft of, of Aviator Jane, and we were looking for our own place. And today marks one month that we've uh, been calling the Armory home as we continue to work towards a public launch uh, of the church in the new year. So if things feel a little bit unsettled around here, it's because they are. <laughs> we're, we're in the process of getting the space built out to be what we need it to be, gaining progress and momentum as we prepare to launch a new church for the people of Owasso. Now over the last couple of months, we've been working through the letter of 1 John in a sermon series that we have titled, Our Joy Complete. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 4 and in verses 7 through 12, if you'd like to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have it up on the screen behind me. And in this text, we see John use the word love 13 times in just five verses. As a quick reminder, to love means to value, to esteem, to manifest genuine concern, to take delight in and to be faithful towards. This is what it means to love. So said in a sentence, love is self-sacrifice. It's seeking the good of someone else at the expense of our own good. So a few weeks ago, we answered the question of how are we to love? And the answer was that we need to love like Jesus and serve one another, which we saw stands in stark contrast with the example that Cain set in Genesis 4. And now today we will endeavor to answer this question. Why are we to love one another? The difference between the two questions may seem subtle. After all, we're only changing one word. But though subtle, the difference is significant. How and why are both interrogative words, but they answer two very different questions. How answers questions like by what method or to what degree? Why, on the other hand, answers questions like, for what purpose or for what reason? Both are important, but if we understand the why behind what we're doing, it makes the how much more attainable. Let's use ourselves as an example. Let's use planting a church as an example. The question, how do you start a church, is a daunting one. It's multifaceted. There are many layers to it. Well, you need, you need a leadership team that can cast vision and preach and shepherd. You need a core team of people to carry out the work of the ministry. There's fundraising involved. There's developing a statement of faith, establishing our guiding doctrine and practice. There's the question of how are we governed? There's the question of where do we meet? What about the children? What about the teens? What about the college students? What's our process for discipleship? Not even to mention the legal side of things. I'm telling you. Well, Jameson can attest to this. He's done a lot of this stuff. There's paperwork on paperwork from filing articles of incorporation to writing 
constitution and bylaws, filing for 501c3 tax exemption, getting insured, and a myriad of other things that you will inevitably run into along the way. But now consider this question. Why do we start a church? Why do we start churches? It's simple. We start churches because we want people to meet Jesus. We want people who don't know Jesus to meet Jesus. And as complex as the how-to of that can be, with its many layers, the why makes it all worth it, does it not? The why gives us the purpose and reason for it all. The why sustains us through the complexities of figuring out the how. The why is the vision for what we are doing, the reason for doing the things that we are doing. The how is the strategy to get us there. So how do we love one another? There are a variety of ways. Let's consider the example of Jesus. Some he fed. Some he healed. Some he consoled. Some he counseled. Some he rebuked. Some he encouraged. Some he mourned with. Some he celebrated with. There are many different ways to love one another, but today we will examine three reasons as to why we love one another. Love is self-sacrifice and is always costly. But when we lay hold to the why of loving one another, it makes the complexities of figuring out how to do it pale in comparison because we have a reason to endure. So why are we to love one another? What is the purpose? What is the reason? What does it produce? Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we will get into our text for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have to gather here. And God, we thank you that we're not just a group of people in a room singing to ourselves praises, but that you meet here with us by your Spirit. And to that end, Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit now as we open your word, that you would use your word to challenge us, to convict us, to lead us to turning away from our sin and looking to you. And God, would you remind us of the hope of the gospel in the text today? My hope and my prayer is that we would leave here not the same that we would leave here changed, that we would leave here knowing and loving you better so we can know and love others better. Will you do this in us? We pray and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and let's turn to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 7 through 8 to start with. Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The first reason we see here as to why we are to love one another, we love one another because God is love. Now, let's break this down phrase by phrase so we can get a better understanding of what John is saying. He says, beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. We see that in the first part of verse 7. 
Simply put, God is the origin of all things, and that includes love. True love and purity comes from God. There is actually no such thing as love apart from him. John is saying love one another because love comes from the God that we profess to follow. Secondly, we see whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, loving people doesn't make someone a Christian. It's not our love that saves us or makes us born of God or causes us to know God. However, love is the fruit of having been born of God. Love is the fruit of knowing God. Love for one another is faith's mark of authenticity in the life of the believer. It's the evidence that we truly know God. The evidence that we truly know God is that we would love one another. We cannot say that we belong to God if we do not have this love for one another. Love for one another is the natural byproduct of knowing God, not a prerequisite. Contrastingly, in verse 8, we see this. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Here, John is saying that if our lives are not marked by love for one another, this is an indication that we don't actually know, let alone belong to the God that we profess to believe in. We have no share in his inheritance if we have not love for one another. It's impossible to know God, to have received his love, to have partaken in his mercy and grace, and to not have love for one another. Why? Let's look at verse 8. Because God is love. Not only is God the creator and origin of love, he himself is love. Love is one of the very attributes that defines his being. Take special note of this. The text says God is love. But what it doesn't say is love is God. Some people get it twisted, so let me make it it clear. God is love does not equal love is God any more than the statement that grass is green means green is grass. God is love. Love is a core aspect of his character. It's his very person. God's love is in no sense in conflict with his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, or even his wrath. All of God's attributes work together in perfect harmony. Everything God does is loving, just as everything he does is just, just as everything that he does is good. This quote from John Piper uh, does a great job of highlighting the correlation of these four things in this first two verses. He says, love is from God the way that heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. The fire gives heat because it is heat. So John's point is that in the new birth, this aspect of the divine nature becomes a part of who we are. The new birth is the imparting to you of divine life. And an indispensable part of that is love. God's nature is love. And in the new birth, that nature becomes a part of who you and I are. When you are born again, God himself is imparted to you. He dwells in you and sheds abroad in your heart his love and an extension of that love to others. 
to know God, to have born of his spirit, to receive this love, it becomes a part of who we are. God's nature is love. And when we become his sons and daughters, that very nature is transmitted to us. To help us better understand what John is getting at, let's consider family genetics for a moment. Every person has two copies of each gene, one from their mother and one from their father. Genes carry instructions to tell the body's cells how to work and grow. Cells are the building blocks of the body. Every part of your body is made up of billions of cells that are working together. Genes are arranged in structures called chromosomes. Humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Copies of the chromosomes are found in each cell. Chromosomes are made up of DNA. DNA is a special code which the instructions in your genes are written. Children inherit pairs of genes from their parents. This is why a child physically resembles their biological parents. Maybe your son has dad's nose and mom's smile or mom's hair color and dad's eye color. Like, let's just look around at those of us who are sitting in this room right now. You don't have to tell anyone that Asher is Jameson and Chelsea's son. <laughs> he looks just like them. Or the same way with Jake and Amanda. You don't have to tell anyone that Iris and Barrett are Jake and Amanda's children because it's written all over their faces. And so it is when we are born of God. When the Spirit regenerates us, he writes the genetic codes of our Heavenly Father upon our hearts. And one of those genes is love. If love is one of God's attributes, you'd better believe that it has been imparted, imparted to his children as well. The question now then for you and I is, do we bear the marks of our Heavenly Father? When people see us, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we treat one another, can they tell to whom we belong to? Can they tell to whom we've descended from? Does our spiritual DNA attest to the fact that we are children of God? Or does it more so tell them that we too still remain as children of a fallen world? Brothers and sisters, we must love one another because God is love. It's who he is and it's who we are to reflect. It is his image that we are to bear to the unbelieving world. And we're going to dive a little bit more into what that means when we get down to verse 12. But for now, I'll wrap up this point with the following quote from John Stott. For the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. It is to fail to manifest the nature of whom we claim is our father. Love is as much a sign of the new birth as is righteousness. Now let's continue on to the second reason that we are to love one another. And we see this in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 first. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John is saying here that love is not some abstract principle. It's not an empty sentiment. 
Rather, this is how God showed his love for you and I. This is how he demonstrated his love for us. And it says, verse nine, he did so by sending Jesus, his only son, into the world that we might live through him. At the dawn of creation, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command and sin entered the world. Prior to their disobedience, on the front end, God told them, he was very clear with them, that their disobedience would result in death, death both spiritually and literally. And now from that day, several thousand years ago to this present moment, all of mankind by default is dead in sin. But it's not just that we inherited Adam and Eve's sin. It's worse. It's much worse. All of us have continued in our own sin against God, in our rebellion against his wise and loving counsel. We were spiritually dead in our sin with no hope beyond our death in this life. That is, unless something happened. And the only solution, the only remedy for our sickness with sin was for God to send his son Jesus to live the perfectly holy life that we failed to live. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God didn't send Jesus to be our rescue because we loved him or because we were doing our best to follow him or because there was something good or desirable in us. No, it's not that we have loved God, but the father sent his son because he loved us in spite of us. Ephesians 1 tells us that he set his heart upon us before he even spoke the world into existence. When Adam and Eve sinned and when they followed in the rebellion, God would have been perfectly just to bring about an end to all of his creation. But he didn't. Why? Because he loved us. Because he was faithful towards us. But being perfectly holy and just, God could not simply leave our sin unpunished or unatoned for. So he sent Jesus. And yes, Jesus lived the perfectly holy life we failed to live. But even more than this, he died the death that we deserved to die for sin. He died in our place and was buried for three days and then rose up out of the grave so that we might have life. That we might have a once and for all victory over our sin and over the grave and its power. Jesus paid the debt that we owed. Take note of how it says that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation, that is just a fancy word that means a sacrifice that would atone for our sin and bring about the forgiveness of our sin, removing all of its guilt. You see, we had a great debt to pay, a debt so great that we had no ability to pay it. But God demonstrated his love for us by sending his son into the world to become the atoning sacrifice for our sin that we could have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. You are loved and will always be loved by the God who is love and wants to shower you in his love. So how do we know this for certain? He sent his son for you and I. 
When we were dead in sin, when we were wayward in our rebellion, when we were utterly undeserving of love, God loved us and sent Jesus to be our sacrifice, to atone and to forgive us of our sin. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John is saying that as beneficiaries of this great love, how could we not extend that same love to those around us? If those, as those who've been forgiven much, how could we not forgive those around us? If he could love us in our lowly state, how could we not love our brothers and sisters who've been covered by the very same sacrifice that we have? As a point of illustration, I'd like for us to uh, just very briefly turn back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we're going to look at verses 23 through 35. The parable of the unforgiving servant. And there's quite a few verses here, and I know that my natural propensity is when I hear someone reading for a long time, I just kind of like tune out because I figure that when it's important, I'll chirp up again. But I'm telling you, this is really important. So just if you hear nothing else, if you, if you get nothing else from this message, like let's focus in on this portion of Scripture here. Verse 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So a little bit of context here. This unforgiving servant owed the king 10,000 talents. That's the equivalent of $3.48 billion in our currency. In that time, it was the equivalent of 200,000 years worth of labor. But what about his fellow servant? His fellow servant only owed 100 denarii. That's $5,800 in today's currency. Four months worth of labor at the time. My friends, God's love for you and I is so great that when we hated him, when we were enemies of him, he sent his son Jesus to be the very propitiation for our sins. We did not love him and we did not serve him, yet he loved us and came to serve us in spite of us. And he paid the full price for our sin with his life and forgave us of all of it. How much more ought we to love and forgive one another? 
We are to love one another because God loved us even in our most unlovable state. The question then is, does our love for others reflect Jesus' love for us? Or if we are honest with ourselves, is it better represented by this unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? Are you presently harboring hatred and unforgiveness in your heart towards a brother or sister who sinned against you? You may be thinking to yourself, but they hurt me. Or maybe they betrayed me. Or, but they neglected me. Undoubtedly, those things make loving and forgiving others very, very difficult because there are multiple layers of hurt and a lot of complexity. But my friends, is that not the very same thing that we did to God? And if we're honest, still do to this very moment. Yet his love tarries with us and so should ours for others. We love one another even when it hurts because God loved us even when it hurt. No one who has ever looked to the cross of Christ and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love towards them displayed can go back to a life of hatred and unforgiveness. God has forgiven us of a much greater debt than anyone could ever possibly owe us. Thirdly, we see this. We are to love one another to help the unbelieving world see the invisible God. And we see this in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God. The word seen here means a careful observing, to fixate on, to gaze upon. And God refers to the one true God of the Bible. Given this context, we can conclude that no one has ever seen God in his unveiled essence, glory, and majesty. That is to say, no one has ever seen God up close and personal in his fully glorified state because he is too holy, too set apart, and too pure for our eyes to behold. In Exodus 33, 20, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God said, no one can see me and live. Visions and revelations of God can be seen in texts like Exodus 33 or in Isaiah 6. These men were given a small glimpse of God, but no one has ever seen God in his unveiled glory because they would be consumed. No one has ever seen God in all of his glory. However, verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God abides in us. That is to say that God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. And his love is to be perfected in us. That word perfected means complete or fulfilled. John is saying here that while no one has ever seen God in his full divine essence, his love is seen in us to others. His love in and through us allows the unbelieving world to see him. No one can see God in his essence, but we can see God through the lives of those who demonstrate his love towards one another. Let's consider the wind for a moment. Have you ever seen the wind? Have you ever smelled the wind? Can anybody tell me what color the wind is? No, of course not. 
Yet while none of us have ever seen the wind, we have seen its effects. As the storm moves in, we see the trees waver and bend at the will of the wind. We see the sand blow across the beach. We can see the waves crashing upon the shore. We can't see the wind, but we can see its effects and are thus convinced of its reality, are we not? Just as trees and waves give us a glimpse of the existence and reality of the wind, so too our love for one another gives the unbelieving world a glimpse of the existence and the reality of the one true God of the Bible. The question then is, do we live our lives in such a way that though no one has seen God, they can see him through us? Is our love for one another reflecting the love of God. It is our love for one another that makes the invisible God visible. For a moment, I want you to think of that one person. Think of that one person who you thought would never come to Jesus because the rebellion against God was so obvious. Do you have someone in mind? When I was in high school, I played in a band, and the vast majority of the venues that we played at here in Owasso were local churches, because churches saw an opportunity in hosting concerts to get young people in their buildings who otherwise would have never stepped foot into the church building. But I remember one show in particular that took place at a church on the north side of town. There was a guy in, atten uh, in attendance who would publicly mock Christians, and especially when the bands would play, he would just be up there just mocking them as they played. And at this concert, he stole a Bible from inside the church and he took it out into the parking lot where he and his buddies were drinking and he lit it on fire. If I'm being completely honest, this is one person where I was like, man, I know God can save anybody, hypothetically. But I cannot fathom this person coming to Jesus. But a couple of years go by, and lo and behold, the same guy who was burning Bibles in the church parking lot was now teaching Bible studies at a local coffee shop. You see, someone had loved him in spite of his hard-heartedness. And through their love, he saw a glimpse of the reality of the God of the Bible. And that person then shared the gospel with him, and he met Jesus in a saving way. And you better believe that the unbelieving world took note. This adversary of Christ and his kingdom was now one of the foremost advocates for Christ and his kingdom to all he came in contact with. This gave the unbelievers around him a glimpse of God and his power because they saw the stark contrast of, of who he was and who he became. This is why testimonies are so powerful. I was this way, but then God moved and did this, and now I am this way. And here in 1 John 4.12, God tells us the same thing happens when we love one another. The God who is unseen can be seen in our love for one another, just as the wind can be seen in the waves that it makes. My hope and my prayer for this church for each and every one of us here, is that we would make great waves for Jesus in the city of Owasso. 
My hope and my prayer is that our love for one another and for the people of this city would make the reality of Christ and his kingdom increasingly visible until the day when every knee in Owasso bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. So as we wrap up, where do we go from here? Where do we start? Here's the first step. Surrender to Jesus and be born again. Have you believed on the sufficiency of his death for the forgiveness of your sin? That is to say, have you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Because we can't truly love one another apart from knowing the God who is love. We are missing the spiritual genetics. But even more than that, you're still dead in your sin. And how will your sin be atoned for? God pleads you to come to him and find rest for your soul. Come to him and have your debt canceled. Come to him and receive hope beyond the grave of this life. In the family of God, the best days are yet ahead, but they're on the other side of this life. And the only way to there is through Jesus. Will you believe on him this day? But maybe you're already a Christian. So my next step for you would be this. Love and forgive. Maybe you're already a Christian, but you're really struggling with unforgiveness in your heart. You're struggling to forgive someone who has inflicted real harm on you. Preach the gospel to your heart. If God can love and forgive us of all our sin and debt against him, how can we possibly not forgive others? Don't be like the unforgiving servant in Jesus' parable, whose great debt ultimately wasn't forgiven because of his unwillingness to forgive his brother of a much lesser debt. Take steps today towards reconciliation. If you need help with this, talk to myself or talk to Jameson after the gathering. We we would love to help you through that. But lastly, where do we go from here? Pray for eyes to see opportunities to tangibly love and boldly proclaim the gospel. May we resolve to love all people because it's God's means for the world to see and to meet him. May we let our love for others be the launch pad for sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for our souls. Pray for opportunities to tangibly love and boldly proclaim the good news this week. The best days are yet ahead for the kingdom of God in the city of Owasso, and it's because of people like you and your love for other people. We love because God himself is love because he has loved us in Christ and because he continues to love in and through us. So I'll leave you with verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Will you bow with me for a moment of prayer? God, we thank you for your word that leads us, that lights our path, that gives us vision when we can't see the way forward. God, we thank you that your word reproves us 
that it rebukes us, that it illuminates the darkness in our hearts that still needs to be worked through by the gospel. And God, my hope and my prayer for us is that we would take what you have spoken in 1 John 4 and that we would apply it today. My hope as we leave this place is that we would sacrificially love one another as you have loved us and in so doing, give the unbelieving world a glimpse of you. God, will you help us to love and will you give us eyes this week to see the people who need your love and Mary, we share the truth of your gospel with them boldly and with passion until the day when every knee in Owasso bows and every tongue confesses that you are Lord. God, we know that you are able. Strengthen us to this end in our weakness. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.